three, two, one. On May 11, 2022, Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla was at the Jenin refugee camp in the West Bank. She was reporting on a raid by the Israeli Defense Forces. And while wearing a blue bulletproof press vest, Shireen was shot in the head and killed by Israeli forces. In 2002, when the Israeli military occupied and completely destroyed the Janine refugee camp as she was there documenting another raid at Janine 20 years later. I'm in D.C. right now, specifically the Lincoln Memorial. There's a rally for the 74th anniversary of the Nekba. The Nekba, which translates to the catastrophe, was the day Zionist military forces expelled at least 750,000 Palestinians from their homes and took over an overwhelming majority of historic Palestine. This rally takes place in different parts of the world every year. But this one is different because this one is four days after the killing of Shireen Abu Akla. Shireen gave birth to the voice of the Palestinian nation. This is the, the, easy, the simplest way I can convey what she meant to all of us in Palestine. This is Laura Albast. She's here with the Palestinian youth movement. She was with us when we looked for our children under the rubble. She was with us when we struggled against Israeli raids and Israeli terror. She was with us every step of the way, making sure that we are not forgotten. And, and she's not gone. She's present every time we speak up about Israeli crimes, about the occupation, about the murder of our people, and about the murder of her. Because while, while she's not present right now, today, with us, her voice is present. And that's what we are going to channel today through this protest. And it's not just Palestinians or Muslims and Christians who have come out to mourn. Uh, we are here as Jews come to uh, show that we mourn on the killing of the journalist Shireen. Um, unfortunately, it was done by people. They call themselves Jews, and they claim to uh, represent Jewish religion. This is Abraham Lefkowitz. He's here with several other members of his community carrying banners and signs of support. And we come here to show support and to show that we mourn together with the Palestinians. So I'm a journalist. Everything that I know about Palestine as a child, my, my most dominant memories are footage that was on Al Jazeera and the voices of Al Jazeera correspondents. Al Jazeera was part of my life. It was part of my childhood. And that's what Shireen was as well. She was a member of the family every day when we watched the news at 8 o'clock at night back home. So it, it is very difficult to fathom that she is gone. But I know that, and, and this is something that she wrote actually on Facebook, is that when there is absence, there is a greater presence. And that's what we see today. When there is absence, there is a greater presence. And that greater presence showed up here in DC 
and in cities all over the world, in mourning and in solidarity. Shireen died telling the truth. After her killing, an Israeli military spokesperson referred to Shireen and her journalist colleagues as, quote, armed with cameras, end quote. A devastating reminder that telling the truth and documenting stories are power, and to some, a weapon. At your service, an iHeartMedia present Rep, Chapter 5, The Truth Truth. It's spring 2014, and I'm wrapping up my last day of journalism school. My classmates and I all exchange goodbyes and good lucks, and my professor, who's also a writer at CNN, stops me on my way out of class. In one last effort, he says to me, are you sure you want to pursue journalism with that? And he points to his head, referring to mine, but more specifically, my hijab. And then he says, it only takes one jerk to, you know. And then his hand takes the shape of a gun. I blurt out awkwardly, I would die for this. And in 2014, I don't know exactly what I mean, but I've thought about it ever since. And what I've come to learn is I was telling him that I would die to tell the truth. And more importantly, to be my truth. It can be so difficult to tell the truth, especially when most of us have never been properly taught how. Funny enough, our bodies are made to keep us alive the best they can. And if our bodies think that telling the truth puts our lives at risk, our bodies will resist. That lump in your throat, shaking hands, a racing heart. The feeling manifests differently for everyone, but you all know exactly what I'm talking about. So telling the truth requires training and skill. And many of us figure that out on our own. Because even though we're told, tell the truth, our survival instinct warns us, tell them what they want to hear. Your life depends on it. I think that's why a lot of us choose to commit to creativity, even if we don't feel creative. It's through art and story that we can train ourselves to tell the truth. And like any healthy, committed relationship, it doesn't serve us to control and limit our art and story. We must remain open because controlling and limiting a story is a recipe for misinformation and misrepresentation. And this is the breakthrough I've just told my friend and fellow journalist, Eamon Ismail. You're giving me goosebumps because this is something that I, I, I think is like so freaking important. And that's sort of why I got into journalism in the first place. Because, you know, ugh, everything that was on TV when it came to things that I held to be true, especially being like Muslim in America, it was like, oh, ask us, you know, uh, mm. come to our community, talk to us. 
Like when I became a journalist, I told myself that I don't know and then I need to find out. And, and even when it came to things that I knew was true, it's like, okay, I know that this thing is true, but let me go and ask about it. Eamon literally has a video series called Who's Afraid of Eamon Ismail, where he confronts the fear of Muslims in the alt-right and in his own community. My name is Eamon. I'm a photojournalist who's kind of had a hard time trying to stay behind the camera lately. Guess why? When's the last time you read the Quran? Maybe last month. You're just a front! Usually when I talk about Islam, people will ask me if I force my wife to cover herself. You know, the stuff they see on TV. Islamic extremist terrorism! I realize it comes down to one thing, fear. So I'm going to confront every one of those fears, one by one, in every corner of the country. The thing that I appreciate so much about your work is that you talk about the stories that we're afraid to talk about. And you bring essentially a community's insides out without bending to the pressure of what you call outside forces of people who, you know, we're trying to please so that they're not afraid of us. Mm. What is your intention behind your approach to the stories you decide to work on? What are you trying to get out of us? Damn, Noor. That's so good to hear because that is exactly what I wanted to do with that series. And I'm just so, I'm about to cry because I'm, I'm serious because that was, it was really challenging for me because I didn't know if I was succeeding in that front. The intention is always tell the truth, truth because there's so many different versions of the truth and everyone's truth is going to be different. So the, the question here is, how do you embrace your, your identity and how do you embrace your perspective and leverage it to tell better stories? And so I found that uh, people are willing to tell you their stories, but they're not just willing to tell it to anybody. They need to tell it to the right person, someone who they can trust. It's not surprised that people have so many uh, feelings and animosity towards reporters and journalists. Uh, it's, it's a choose-your-own-destiny world out there. And people, if they want to see all the bad, they'll see the bad. If they want to see the good, they'll see the good. So you kind of need to accept that you can't convince people that journalism is one way or the other. It's, it's everything at the same time. So uh, you need to leverage your perspective, your personality, your flavor in order to get people to open up to you and trust you. And you, you can't get someone's story if they don't trust you. That's, that's really everything. Leveraging perspective and personality and facilitating trust are storytelling tools my friend Hassan Minhaj also uses in his truth-telling work, both in his stand-up comedy and on his show Patriot Act. Patriot Act investigated culture and politics through Hassan's deeply intentional and comedic lens. The show was named after the United States' Patriot Act, a haunting post-9-11 law that allowed for intrusive surveillance of Americans in the name of fighting terrorism. The law directly targeted American Muslims. Hassan's show premiered with an episode on Saudi Arabia and the murder of journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. And it blows my mind 
that it took the killing of a Washington Post journalist for everyone to go, oh, I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, yeah, no shit. He's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. The immediate feelings I had while watching this episode were trust because he opened the show investigating a story that felt deeply personal to him and to the broader Muslim and journalist communities. And the other feeling was, wow, this is what representation feels like. Is that who we think it is? Oh, hey, 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 what's up? Hey! Salams, how are you? What's up, bro? How are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Happy belated birthday. Right now, Hassan is on tour for his second comedy special, The King's Jester, where he gives us personal context to his experiences covering tough stories on Patriot Act. And in top comedic fashion, he ties that into his struggle with infertility and his welcome to fatherhood. We're backstage right now before his show in Kingston, New York. Kingston is a town with a backdrop of mountains, just less than a couple hours north of New York City. I see like jokes like little puzzles. So when you set it up with like a great premise and a punchline, it's just like a great bar or a verse in a song or in a poem, right? And it for a moment, it's like, oh, I, I unlocked the code in the matrix. There's all these things I can't unlock, right? Like my relationship with my parents, or this, the relationship with my sister. But in this moment, like... I figured it out. I got this like breath of oxygen, right? For Hassan, comedy is how he shares his unlocks. The invention of American modern stand-up comedy was a thing that was started in the nightclubs and jazz clubs of New York City. Like here, like where we kind of are. Adults would get dressed up, they would see a cabaret show, they would see a jazz show, they would see a musician, and then in between they would see a comedian and what's called a nightclub act. But there was this agreed upon social agreement of like, hey, so it's 1030 at night, Adam and Noor got dressed up, we know what it is, we're going to talk a little smack, we're going to say some things that we would, we would never say above ground. We're yeah. literally in a basement. Yeah. So this context of this art form mm. of just like... In Hindi, we call it like kind of just like natak shetani, like dangerousness, now has been put on the internet. So 8 billion people around the world are now seeing a basement art form. And at the same time, it is an incredible IRL in real life art form where you have to adjudicate the room. You got to be like, hey, what are the times that I'm living in? What's appropriate to say right now? What's not appropriate to say right now? The way you and I would joke at night if we're all alone is very different than the way I would joke at the White House Correspondence Dinner or at a masjid function or at my sister's Valima. Like, and I've had to tell jokes at all of those different things. And I remember Aisha at my like sister's wedding was like, you cannot joke about this, this, that. There is a jurisprudence to your jokes. That's an important thing. There's that famous quote, if you want to tell people the truth, you'd better make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. The art form is going through a very weird time right now. I feel like music has been able to survive. I think everyone has the social knowledge. They understand beat and hyperbole. When Olivia Rodrigo says, you ripped my heart out, we all understand her ex-boyfriend didn't literally crack open her sternum and pull her heart out. She's evoking a feeling. Don't focus on what I'm saying. 
listen to what I mean, right? That fundamental problem of, I think, people not being able to determine the difference between satire and sincerity, those two things, has been, it's been very tough for the art form, and I'm navigating that for myself. So that's been disillusioning, that part of it as a comedian. The disillusioning part for me is like a, a public figure. I relate to Hassan's feeling of disillusionment. There have been times where I haven't put out work because I get consumed with thinking about how people are going to react or if they'll really get it. And for Hassan, there's an even greater challenge. The tough part is I get to say and do all these things, but my, my family has to live with the consequences. And that's a tough thing. And they didn't necessarily sign up for that. Hassan's immediate family includes his wife, Bina, and his two little ones. And in his new special that we're here tonight to watch, he tells a story of how his child's life was put in danger after his Saudi Arabia episode of Patriot Act. There have been definite like ups and downs that I've had and having that relationship with Bina and being like, hey, is this okay? You know, the world has, has rough edges. Yeah. That you'll bump into things. Oh, I didn't, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's, that's like the growing pains and the tough, painful part of life and relationships. It's, it's tough. In order to get to the unlock, in order to figure the matrix out, you had to do work on yourself. You had to figure out who you were. You had to figure out what your stories were. Totally. And, and you worked in news for years. You know, there's this other part of it, which is the meta narrative, right? Is that like, when you become a public figure, you become an avatar. Right. So there's times where like everybody knows me. I grew up in Davis. I grew up in Sacramento. Everybody knows me. It's just like the skinny, daisy kid from the masjid, right? But now I'm at Hassan Minhaj. I'm blue check verified. I become, I become an avatar that represents something. And that's where people are like, I'm disappointed in you. You should have done this. <laughs> I'm mad at you. You should be this. Or I'm, you're awesome because you did this, all those sort of things. And um, there's moments like when I'm on a plane and Bina's breastfeeding and somebody's coming over and taking a picture. That's a part of it of like, hey, no, no, no. I'm a, hey, I'm just a person. I'm just a person just like you. And I'm holding up a blanket. She's breastfeeding. You know, and like, I remember the guy was like, no, dude, but I'll, I'll, I'll cut her out. And it's like, bro, I don't know you like that. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't, I don't know you and like even that. If I, you am did. A, I am a person, you know, I am an IRL human being. And so I'm not just like a video game character. And I'm sure you felt that way. Noor Taguri represents this specific thing, right? You're this type of person and Vogue will frame you that way or... It, the internet will frame you that way. Those are the times where you feel out of control. You feel like you don't have a say. That's the disillusioning part of it. Mm. I feel like I'm just being a genuine, sincere person, but then I pull out this phone and I'm not. I'm this thing now. This is where things get challenging for me because one of the recurring themes of my life has been misrepresentation misrepresentation of myself, misrepresentation of my community. And my frustrations have usually been with people who are telling our stories. Why can't they get it right? But it wasn't until rep that I started asking myself, is representation really what we need? So my name is Najma Sharif. 
she, her, um, or they, if you, you know, want to get spicy. And I'm a writer. I am a cultural critic. I am a pop culture analysist. And I'm just, you know, living in the world as a Somali American Muslim woman. Nejma argues, we don't need representation. And I needed to ask her why. Representation is limiting. What does representation actually mean? Does it mean a representation of people who look like us? Does it mean representation of people who experience our lives? Does it mean representation of class, race? Does it mean representation of location, religion? Does it mean representation of trauma? It's too narrow. Representation needs to be more than symbolic and it never has been. It's not tangible. I can't feel it. I can't see it. All I can do is, I guess, praise someone for getting in a position that matters. When we talk about tokenization, we're talking about representation. We're talking about people getting in positions of power. And we're talking about people getting in positions of influence. That's why I say that. I don't say it flippantly. But I'm literally like, what is the evidence of representation leading to material change? Because, yes... You're a brilliant journalist. I'm a brilliant writer. Let's be brilliant together. But why aren't there more of us? Nejma relates tokenization and representation. And I understand why. A lot of representation or diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts result in tokenization. Seeing a person only for the box you've put them in rather than humans with an individual experience and perspective. As a journalist, Eamon has to wrestle with the question of his journalistic objectivity versus his personal perspective. But what if his subjective view is not a bias to overcome, but rather a point of view that adds credibility and depth to his storytelling? With that reframe, perspective becomes key to his storytelling. So... Yeah, no, everybody has a perspective. What does your perspective do for you is the question that I think we should really be asking ourselves. How are you using your perspective? Perspective isn't limiting. Perspective is evolving and infinite. It's how my friend Eamon is able to tell stories about things like homophobia in the Muslim community, stereotypes about Muslim marriages, and even the Me Too movement's impact on Muslim women. Now, my perspective isn't just Muslim because nobody is that simple of a person. (laughs) Is everything that everyone does responding to their religion? No, that's ridiculous. So I, I see myself as a kid who listens to a particular kind of music, who likes a particular brand of sneakers, who likes to skateboard but can't do any tricks and is kind of embarrassed by that. You know, so there's like so many facets to this. And you you sort of need to be comfortable with yourself, find the confidence to embrace those biases and let that tell you what stories that you're interested in and let that drive your curiosity. So what role does objectivity play in telling the truth, truth. Mm, snap, 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 snap. That's a great question. You know, um, objectivity is a lie. <laughs> and I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't always believe that. And even during that time, I told myself I need to be objective. 
Even during that time when I was making Who's Afraid, I told myself I needed to be objective. Like that was the goal. But I think it came out of watching journalists when I was a kid fumble around. If you look back at those stories now with, with the modern goggles that we have today, you still see a, 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 an implicit bias. And, and not just in what you're saying or what you're reporting, but who you're choosing to talk to. How you present the story. What part of the story do these voices come in and out of? Like all of that is, is, is affected by bias. And a bias doesn't really mean anything other than perspective. So are we going to, as journalists, have no perspective? That doesn't, like when you think of it that way, it's just, it's so obvious that it's a farce. Like it's good to hold it back, but there is a lot to gain from embracing your bias and thinking about it objectively. It wasn't until this chapter of Rep that I realized investigating representation naturally includes investigating the concept of objectivity. It's why it keeps coming up. And if we need to start with ourselves, then a good place to start is Eamon's suggestion, thinking about your own bias objectively. When we get a better understanding of our authentic perspective, our intention with a story becomes more clear. And the desire to be clearly seen and clearly understood is part of the foundation of telling the truth truth. Intentional storytelling brings us intimately closer to one another. It's a mutual exchange that asks the question of all parties involved. Do you see me? Hassan actively thinks about this question while he's on tour. For me, I just see the storytelling style of what I do, which is like a hybrid of theatrical storytelling with stand-up comedy. I see it as the way I make sense of the human experience and my experience. Like that's really what comedy is for me. And every, like every show, you know, what you'll see tonight versus what you'll see eventually in the special, it's like, I'm just tweaking it ever so slightly to be like, hey, is the core intention of what I'm saying resonating mm, with you? Mm-hmm. And really what, I'm trying to ask the audience through this like relationship is like, hey, do you see me? Do you get what I'm saying? Do you understand? So there's a line in the show where I talk about if I really trust the audience, I got to close the gap between who I am on Instagram and who I am on iMessage. And I got to give you iMessage me because best believe everybody that you like love, like that you revere, you know, IG them but I want to know I message you and I message you is sloppy and messy and ratchet and righteous. And <laughs> ratchet and, and righteous. Yeah. But it's like, but if I trust you, yeah, then you see all of me. So the way y'all text, the way me and Bina text, like you, if you unloaded those I messages to the world, you imagine if the cloud just burst, but that's who we are. And so to me, That is art. Art is an expression of the human condition. And so my goal, inshallah, like this is to continue to be an artist and continue to show the world I message me. 
Showing the world I message me can seem terrifying until I realize that it's less about ourselves personally and more about how telling the truth of ourselves subjectively from our uniquely biased perspective can also create space and give permission for others to do the same. And then we realize we aren't so uniquely alone. I think for like a lot of us type A competitive academic Kumon kids, like we grew up in a, <laughs> it's all about what can I get yeah. and the at your service. Like to me, what, what really resonated with me is like, hey, I'm just going to give this to you. Here you go. Like here, it's like, I'm just giving this to you. At your service has become a personal philosophy of mine. And it's what we call our storytelling platform. I believe in stories as a form of service. What a really beautiful way to like frame, I actually think what art really is. That's so cool. Like, wow. hey, I'm here to give you joy. Like, I, hear, I just want to give you joy. I want to give you a mm. good time. I want to give you respite. I want to give you understanding of the human condition. Like when I say at your service and I give you this story, I am recognizing the entity of the story as its own thing and saying like, this is so precious and also this doesn't belong to me. It oh, like, it's cool. also for you and it's also for you. It, yeah. it really is like through this lens of abundance. I hope we always remember that. Mm. You know what I mean? Cause it's crazy. Like the, and maybe this is like both my like Islamic Muslim upbringing meeting who I am as a person now is I also have come to realize like I'm one scroll away from being forgotten. <laughs> like, yo, like for real, like mm -hmm. you're just like comedian Hassan Minaj dies and it's like, whoa, Pete Davidson has a bubble. Like it's just, 100%. it's over. So I might as well like hopefully be of service to people or like be a yeah. good friend, hit you back on text. Like that's all I could really control. Oral historian Zahir Ali tells me a storyteller should offer their audience three things, representation, authenticity, and intimacy. Representation is this person comes from our community and is in, is able to bring forward our stories, our ideas, to the broader public, right? Like they they can speak in places, in ways to people that maybe we can't. Right. Because they have access in ways that we don't. So they speak for us. They stand in for us. They tell our stories because we can't tell them. That's representation. That's not enough. So we also need authenticity. Not only do we need representation, but we need authenticity. We need people who are genuinely of our community, who are telling the stories because they have themselves lived those stories. That's authenticity, that this is real to them, right? But I would argue we need another factor, which is intimacy, that our storytellers can't just be representative of us, they can't just be, tell stories that are authentic to them. They must be in relation to us. That's what intimacy means, to be in relationship with. So like when I interview someone and like do their oral history, 
I am establishing a relationship with that person of trust. That trust extends beyond the point of when I hit stop on the recording. One of the reasons I started At Your Service was because I didn't feel like I could tell stories as openly as I wanted to within the constraints of traditional media. The way I think about it is story first, medium second. Podcast or video isn't always the best way to convey a message. And if the story is priority, then I think collaboration and telling a story is key. Nejma thinks so too. Collaboration is radicalism. It's revolutionary. I know a lot of creatives, which is like something I've been like contending with, right? A lot of Muslim creatives particularly, we feel such a type of way about reaching out or letting our friends reach out to other people. Rep is a collaboration with iHeart, with School of Humans, and with one of my favorite writers, Zarin Burnett. This series wouldn't exist without them. And while working on this series, it's been so important to share with each person I speak to why their work means so much to me. When a body of work makes me feel seen, I want the person who delivered it to know I see them too. I have been just fighting for people to get along, people to work together. Collaboration to me is the most radical aspect of artistic expression right now. We don't even have to like have the same politic. We just have to have the same vision for the world. Me personally, as a black Muslim woman, I want Muslim artists collaborating. I want black artists collaborating. I want black and Muslim artists collaborating. I want black Muslim artists collaborating. I'm in such an interesting vantage point where I'm like, let's get along. We have so much shit to do. Like, what are we stopping for? We have so much more to accomplish through collaboration than we do with division and scarcity. And with collaboration, you kind of dispel scarcity because you're like, I want to work with my friends. What, like, it's not just my name on a byline or my name on a video or my name on a podcast. It's all my girls. It's all my boys. It's all my girls, boys and days. Let's go. <laughs> Collaboration and connection. That's how we document truthful, representative stories. One of Eamon's approaches to collaboration in telling a difficult story is finding what he calls the mayor of the corner. It really came into play uh, a couple of years ago after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. I went down, you know, it was, an, it was like an instinct that I had to go and like tell the story of the neighborhood because I came from a neighborhood not too different from that area. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Gun violence is not unfamiliar, unfortunately. It's just part of my experience. And I told myself, that the journalists who were going down and doing like what I call like parachute reporting, where they just drive by, do a day of report recording and then leave. I was like, that's not doing it justice. If he wanted to find the story, he had to get to know the community. And I spent the next three, four days just in that intersection, walking around, talking to everybody, not just for interviews, but just getting to know them and getting a sense for who, who are the players in this corner. And, and that sort of goes back to my, my Newark experience where I know that every corner has its players and every corner is run by people. So 
you know, I went to the gas station, talked to some people there, walked four blocks up, talked to the deli person there, talked to, uh, you know, the regulars at the, the corner store where George Floyd was uh, last. And then I spoke to a couple other reporters just asking them, like, what is it like to talk to people here? What is What are your feelings? And this is all work that I did before I actually pulled out a recorder and talked to anybody. And the the real magic happened when I met one person who who claimed to be like the mayor of the corner and that's who you're really looking for when you when you show up to the spots it's unofficial nobody might recognize that title nobody might respect them that way but somebody who feels that way is a good person to talk to for a story like this i only use like one line of his quotes but his access everyone that he introduced me to immediately trusted me every person that who was basically walking me around and, and trying to explain something to me, gave me another person to talk to. And you chase those leads. You don't just say, okay, I got it. And then you go home and you write your story. No, when somebody says you should talk to this person, you should really talk to that person. I talked to the people who owned the store where George Floyd last was. And, you know, they were like, you should talk to my brother who really runs this part side of the business. And I was like, okay. And then I went to go talk to somebody else who was like, oh, you should talk to this person. The Abu Meyelis, that's, what the, that's their last name. So I interviewed every single brother, because it's four brothers, four Palestinian brothers who run that store together. I interviewed all of them, some of them multiple times. I interviewed the security guard. I interviewed the, some of the people who work behind the counter. It's through Eamon's collaboration with the community that he was able to fill in the context and nuances in one of the most widely reported stories of 2020. And I ended up interviewing the person who made the, the 911 call, young black kid who became suicidal after what had happened. He still had to, to see all of the consequence of that 911 call and all of the, just the armchair discussion about what consequence it has in this country when you do call the cops on a black person. He was black himself. He was like a 16, 17 year old black kid who had no idea about any of this stuff because he was an immigrant from West Africa. He had just gotten to this country six months before that had happened. So he had no idea. And it was just this insane experience as a journalist to leverage my bias as a kid who grew up in a hood to get access to this other hood that I'm not, that I've never been to, that I'm not familiar with, but still get that perspective as if I was local because I talked to people who told me to talk to the next person, told me to talk to the next person, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that experience really changed the way that I think about what a good journalistic story is. A good journalistic story doesn't stop at a press release or the first few reports that are produced. It comes from speaking to the evolving parts of a story and evolving the reporting with it, even if it's messy. If it's messy, tell a messy story. So that's when I learned basically to tell every part of the story in my story and not just focus on the things that I think make something more readable or easier to understand. It's all about using what you know to find out what you don't know. Using what you know to find out what you don't know. That takes time. Time many journalists don't have in the 24-hour news cycle. 
When I worked in local television news, I had to produce multiple stories a day in time for our evening newscast. Each news package had to be two to three minutes long. And that's the job for most local news reporters, multiple stories a day with a very limited time to share them, let alone time to build trust with the people whose stories you are telling. Hassan's show Patriot Act felt like an antidote to the work I did as a local TV reporter. He had a very specific intention while interrogating topics we talk about, like student loan debt, the opioid crisis, and even the streetwear brand Supreme. The goal of Patriot Act was to try to pull out 30,000 feet and to try to provide like a 20-minute to 27-minute deep dive that gives you larger context on Saudi Arabia, insulin pricing, student loan debt. Like, you know, Prashant, the director of the show, he says this, and, and I love this quote he uses to describe great comedians. They're able to provide moments of moral clarity during social panic. But just a counter to that, there is also like the weekly churn of it. Okay, what's the next story? And you don't get to reflect on like a ton of like, hey, what do I want to say? Hassan's comedy specials, Homecoming King and The King's Jester, are ways he gives his viewers additional context into who he is as a human. He also enjoys collaborating with his audience. You watch Homecoming King, if you see this show, there's also a lot of stuff that I just want to talk about the human condition yeah. that sh a show like that's not going to allow you to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what I love the most is being, say, and hear Kingston and seeing how Kingston is going to react to the show versus Radio City. So it's about the people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool being like, OK, I'm in Florida. I'm in Tampa, Florida. Like there's not a lot of people perhaps in the audience with my life experience. But how is this going to resonate in Tampa? That to me is really interesting because I, I don't want to. I don't want the story to just resonate in a very niche bubble. I want it to be able to be ontologically truth, like the core essence of what I'm talking about. Those themes: fertility, fatherhood, freedom of speech. I want some random dude in Kingston to be like, "Oh yeah, 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 I, I get it." Like, yeah. Oh, I see that. The same way when I like grew up listening to music watching basketball, listening to certain artists, watching different, they didn't have my life experience, but I so felt mm. what they were saying because there was like these core human truths. Fertility, fatherhood, and freedom of speech. Universal concepts that influence all of us. For Eamon, becoming a father forced him to examine some of his own stories. I'm a dad now. I just had a baby this summer. And it was really, it was like a roller coaster of emotions. And I didn't exactly handle it well. Let me just put it that way. I, I had like a panic attack for the first time in my life when the baby came home. And it was like a mess. I had overprepared. No, I had like spreadsheets and charts and pie charts and stuff. It was really embarrassing. And uh, my wife was like, yo. And she, she like looked at me and she started tearing up and she was like, like, what are you, who are you? Like, what are you doing? Like, you, you just brought this, like, home, this baby, this, like, new life, and you're obsessed over your freaking charts and your spreadsheets and these, like, things that you printed out. He's like, stop looking at that and look at your baby. Enjoy him. And I couldn't do that because I had overprepared. I couldn't see what was right in front of me. He didn't know it then. 
but Eamon's panic was in reaction to his own trauma. He was a new father already trying to protect his son from a reductive story that almost sent Eamon to Riker's Island. So I sat down and I thought, okay, what does this have to do with my life experience? And then I thought about all of the, the pain that I had to feel from feeling reduced to being one version of myself. Being told who I was and how that made me feel. We don't have to get into it, but like, well, I was arrested for like a pretty serious charge. And the it was trespassing. It wasn't like murder or anything. Relax. <laughs> uh, trespassing on a bridge to take pictures. And the judge immediately went into like terrorist mode and thought that I was like planning to blow the city up. Do you want me to tell this story? Should I like, are you interested in this? Yeah, of course. Oh. Rep. This was like the the most significant moment in my life where I had felt like my identity was taken away from me, and then another one was assigned to me that I didn't identify with. So this is what happened. I saw myself as like an edgy New York City cool guy photographer. Uh, I was like riding my skateboard around the city, chatting up everybody, asking them like if they had access to places that nobody else had access to. It's insane. It, I had this period where I had just found the keys to the city and the keys to the city was just asking people to take you someplace that nobody else had access to. And I was getting the best pictures you knew, you, you wouldn't believe. It's spring 2015 and someone's just told Eamon that they can get him to the top of the Williamsburg Bridge. I asked him, yo, can I? Can I go document you while you climb this bridge? And he was like, hell yeah. This young kid, blonde kid. He looked like a, a Viking. We called him Thor as a joke. So they get to the top of the bridge. But you can't hear anything because it's all just wind. And it's like, <sighs> I felt like a baby being returned to the womb. It was like, <sighs> it was sick. And the storyteller in him documented it. Took some cool ass pictures, uh, published them because as a journalist, you know, I was like, this is the cool story. The New York Times linked to it. The New York Post wrote about it. It was like on television, it's like CBS did a news report. I felt really good. Months later, I get a phone call from my roommate being like, dude, there's cops here. There's like four detectives and they're, they're wearing like trench coats and they, they're like asking to talk to you. And I was like, okay, uh, don't let them in. Hide my hard drives find my computer and like shove it into like something so that they don't find it. I got on the phone with the guy who left the card and he was like, yo, we got everything on you. You got to turn yourself in today or we're going to come get you. I'd never been in a situation like this before. I'd never been arrested for anything ever. So I was scared to death. I was like, oh no, what are they going to do to me? So I turned myself in. They show me the, the article that I'd written. And I was like, look, I don't have a lawyer here. My lawyer is like on the way. I'm going to like sit quiet. Uh, I've seen Law and Order. <laughs> okay. I've seen The Wire. I know that I'm not supposed to talk. Uh, they take my belt, take my shoelaces, and I don't see daylight for three days. They basically stick me in the tombs underneath the courthouse where you're supposed to get arraigned. You're supposed to see a judge. But it's funny, when I go there, I run into who? But Thor. I see Thor there. And we were like, oh, what's up, man? What's, what's going on? I was like so thankful because I was, I was so scared, Nur. I was so scared. 
But you know what's funny? The first thing I say when I walk in was I just let out a loud Asalaamu Alaikum. And everybody turns around and they go, Alaikum Asalaam. I'm like, oh shit, my people. <laughs> and so that like made me feel better too. Yeah, it was beautiful, but also terrifying. Because like, we're all here. The we he's referring to is other incarcerated Muslims. Even inside the tombs, he was able to find community. But then that same thought became frightening. Why were there so many Muslims locked up with him? And then like detectives show up and they're like, hey, do you, uh, do you know about any plots to blow up the city? What mosque do you pray at? Who are your cousins? What country are your parents from? I was like, you guys, I live in this city. Like, you don't think that if somebody were to come to me and be like, hey, you want to blow something up? I wouldn't, like, snap on them right now and call the cops? Like, do, you, do, you, do I want to die is what you're asking? <laughs> so I was, like, offended. And that's when I realized I'm not, like, a photographer here. They didn't, like, catch a journalist who was somewhere where he shouldn't have been. They caught a Muslim kid or he was somewhere where he shouldn't have been. And we're going to use the leverage that we have on this Muslim kid to do police work on, like, the Muslim community. And I was like, oh, my God. When that clicked, I was, like, exhausted. And that's when it, like, that's when the fear got replaced with just a, a core sadness, and I just was angry, and I hated everything. And I wanted to just break out and run away and, and just be a recluse and never talk to anyone again. Like, that's really how I felt. It's how most of us would feel if our humanity was stripped away and we were forced to live inside the confines of someone else's story of us. One, based on fear. But then when I saw the judge finally, he was like, you know, this is a very serious thing and how do we know you weren't going to like blow it up? And uh, he was like, if you get in trouble like something like this again, we're going to deport you. He said he was going to deport me, Noor. And I was like, you're, you're just giving me an identity that I don't identify with. I, I never saw myself this way, ever. But they do, and that's all they see. So that's who I am now. Day three arrives, and Eamon is put on a bus getting ready to be sent to Rikers Island, a New York City prison notorious for its brutality, neglect, and corruption. With divine timing, his editor gets him out on bail. And that was all because of who they thought I was. Nothing to do with who I am. In the end, Noor, they just gave me community service. Guess what? Guess what the white kid got? Nothing. <laughs> I love him, though. I don't like calling him a white kid because he's so much more than that, too, you know? Thor. Being misrepresented in such a traumatizing way was still living inside of Eamon when he became a father six years later. The lesson that I learned there was, and this is why I'm so afraid, now that I have like a Muslim kid who's my son, is how do I prepare him for something like that? How do I make his life easier than mine was? You know, he's growing up in the same area that I grew up in. I actually am, he's growing up two blocks from my childhood home. I love Newark. I'm never leaving Newark. Like, it's, it's home. The fear that I have, I realized the fear I had was, was about control and wanting to do, live this kid's life for him. 
And I don't know what his experience is going to be. I don't know what his relationship to Islam is going to be. I don't even know if Islamophobia will be as big a problem as it was because of journalists like you and, and me. And so that was like a, a very emotional like depression that I had for like the first three months of my son's life where I was just beating myself up, trying to figure out like, how do I do this? Can I do this? Should I leave? Should I raise him in a Muslim country? Should I have named him Jeff? <laughs> Should I have given him a name like Mike? For Eamon, he decided he can't control what happens. So instead, he'll focus on his child. Right now, in this moment. Because that's all any of us ever has. Right now, in this moment. But as soon as I just looked at him, and he was just sitting there, sucking on his finger, you know, pooping his pants, I was like, this is, this is who he is right now. That I should be like paying more attention to that, enjoying him more, uh, laughing in his direction, so he sees my smile. And, uh, and and when I feel sad or tired, not trying to hide it from him either, like exposing him to the whole range of, of emotions that his father has, and, and wanting to just have a relationship that is more than just like caregiver and, and, and care receiver. It's, it's something that I think will help me, because it's really about me more than, more than it is about him, something that'll help me be more prepared and more ready to be the dad that he needs when he needs me to be. So that's, that's the battle, and that's where I landed. And I think it's kind of related to everything we were talking about, about letting ourselves be taken by the story. Finding a way to conquer our own egos, stop trying to be the perfect best writer, and just allow what's happening in front of us to expose us to its beauty and its hardship and its rawness and its godliness. American Muslims aren't the only people who struggle between narratives forced upon us and the ones we actually identify with. But the misrepresentation of Muslims has harmed all of us. Living in a constant state of fear isn't fun for anyone. And struggling with conflicting narratives is actually why I felt the need to do this work. In Eamon's words, I needed to figure out my own truth truth so that I can better understand the truth truth of those around me. When we're constantly having to think about these things and explain these things and 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 think about how we reflect on it, and, ugh, it just it feels like a trap because there's so much more to study there. I'm so exhausted of the story that forces us to choose a side between being Muslim and being Islamophobic. It's just not reflective of the country and it's not reflective of our experience. It's it's a lie. Is that all we are? I don't think so. So then, how do we tell more representative stories of Muslims? The first thing that my mind goes to is that Rami uh, Yusuf joke. He has this one joke about how the day of the Muslim ban, the reporter was like, this is a sad day for Muslims. And he was like, well, actually, I had a pretty good day that day. And he talks about how like he just got like 
cast for this Taco Bell commercial and he was like all excited. And I think about that a lot because uh, the, the, the Muslim experience is so, it's a trap to like even call it that because what is the Muslim experience? What is it? I don't know. I grew up Muslim. I have my experience, but does that mean that I relate to a Muslim who grew up in Nashville or a Muslim who grew up in Texas or a Muslim who grew up in Bangladesh and immigrated here? No, we all have our different experiences. It's not that we don't need representation. Seeing Muslims and Arabs across media has been so healing for me. But every person is different and has their own unique life experience. One person cannot be representative of an entire group. It's harmful, dehumanizing, and frankly, it's boring. While working on rep, I've immersed myself in the work of my friends and peers, watching their shows, listening to their music, reading their books, witnessing their unlocks, and knowing they're going through an individualized, yet similar journey as my own. And that there's room for all of us. So this is my pitch to you. Commit to a relationship with story. Acknowledge them, give them space to evolve. And whenever you can, choose to engage with the authentic story of others. Because the truth, truth connects all of us. You're about to hit a stage. Yeah. About to do that. We're about to commune. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be great. My first time, my first time performing at Kingston. We'll see how it goes. Rep is a production of At Your Service, School of Humans, and iHeart Podcasts. The show is written and produced by me, Noor Tajuri, and Zaren Burnett. Editing, production, sound design, and scoring by Josh Fisher. Theme song written and composed by Maimuna Youssef, a.k.a. Mumu Fresh. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock. Our associate producers are Tyler Donahue and Betsy Cardenas. Mix and master by Bahid Frazier. Audio assembly by Mary Dew. Fact-checking by Marissa Brown. Our executive producers are Adam Kafif, Zaren Burnett, Jason English, and me, Noor Tajodi. Special thanks to Virginia Prescott from School of Humans and Will Pearson from iHeart Podcasts. I'd also like to thank Hassan Minhaj, Ayman Ismail, Najma Sharif, Zahira Lee, Laura Elbast, and Abraham Lefkowitz for trusting us with this story. And of course, in memory of Shireen Abu Akra. If this podcast resonated with you and you'd like to support the show, please rate and review and share it with someone else you think may enjoy it. Tune in to Rep next time. I'm Noor Tajuri, as always, at your service. <laughs>